0: Well, good morning, fellowship. How's everyone doing? All right. Welcome welcome back to church on a Sunday morning. Great to see you today. Glad you're back. We are in uh, week three of a four-week series looking at apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith. Um, if you, for whatever reason, weren't here for the prior two Sundays, I want to let you know that we've got some resources up on the website that will allow you to go back and, and uh, re-watch prior sermons if you happen to have missed them. The, the benefit of, or the value in that is uh, we're building kind of a cumulative case for the trustworthiness of the New Testament. And so these entries will all matter as we kind of look at the totality of the information that we're going to be uh, evaluating together. And I also learned um, two nights ago that sometimes the information that I'm conveying may not be fully comprehended, uh, I heard my, one of my daughters say the other day, yeah, what are the odds of Jesus being in Texas? And I'm like... We, we spoke about Texas, it was in the analogy, and it did involve Jesus, let's go back and revisit some of that. Um, So if you are here, I know why you're laughing, and if you weren't here going, what, what's going on? Um, There is a chance that some of the content I've covered may not be super easy to understand or to keep up with, so if that's you, if some of the stuff I'm describing might need to be revisited, I just wanna let you know that we've got all the information up on the internet, on the church website. Full recording of the sermon is posted. And every Sunday, I see some people holding up their phones to the screen to take pictures. That's great. I love that you're showing that learner attribute. That's fantastic. Just know that every slide of the PowerPoint that I'm showing is also on the website connected with that week. There's also a full copy of my teaching notes transcript. That's also on the internet. And then every now and then there'll also be supplemental support articles, uh, Word documents or PDFs uh, that affirm some of the stuff we're talking about in the event that I don't have the time to cover the subject exhaustively. So just know all that is there and should be worth uh, your while to revisit if you'd like to go back and do that. All right. Now, a uh, couple things. Uh, as we go forward... Uh, we're going to be having a follow-up class on apologetics. Uh, if you're the type of person who, like myself, when, when I first heard content like this, I really felt like my mind just came alive. I loved what I was learning, and I was super excited uh, to be digesting it and absorbing it. Um, if that's you, and I recognize perhaps apologetics isn't everybody's cup of tea, but if that's you, and you're like, man, I'd like to learn more about that, come to this six-week class, Um, This is going to be on Thursday nights, I believe, starting after Labor Day. And the benefit of coming to this class is that these are 90-minute sessions. This is not 35-minute sermon where I'm talking at you. This is 90 minutes where we get to interact with each other, right? And if you want to say, hey, I don't know if I fully buy into that. I'm not sure if I fully agree with that statement. We get to have an exchange on these Thursday evenings, and they tend to be a little more lively and certainly more interactive, I heard a, a comment from a, a youngster on Friday night. I was at a pizza place, and, and and one of my daughters said, "I think that's cap." I'm like, "Say again?" She said, "Yeah, I think that's cap." I'm like, "Did you leave a letter out of that state out of that statement?" She said, "No, dad. That, that's cap. It smells like cap." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And cap apparently means I don't know if I trust what you're saying. Right, I, think, I think you're not be, being fully truthful. Turns out teenagers are still inventing words like they did when I was a youngster and a teenager. But if you think anything we're saying is CAP, then you, you can come <laughs> and, and, and you, can, you can say that in this room, right? And you can say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm on board with that. Can we talk through that more? I have an objection. This is the environment where you get to call CAP, whatever that means. And if you're a teenager and you're like, yeah, I get that, then fantastic. <laughs> All right. So this is the environment where you can do that. All right. This morning, we are going to do one more entry into the case for the New Testament. And we're going back to the New Testament because we have left the critic a little bit of wiggle room. Now, if you're a critic in the room this morning and your arms are crossed and you've been here for the last two weeks looking like this, you might be thinking the following. You might say, okay, Mike, based on what you said, I get that that New Testament book is textually intact, it looks like we have an accurate copy of the Bible in our hands that has successfully passed 2,000 years of transmission. I'll also grant you that this guy named Jesus seems to have fulfilled all of these predictions and promises that were written about him hundreds of years in advance. But how do we know that these New Testament authors reported on him accurately? Maybe they simply made up stories about Jesus to make him look like the promised Messiah. That's what we're gonna look at today. The question we have before us this morning is, we know the New Testament today is an accurate copy, but is it an accurate copy of the truth, or is it an accurate copy of a lie? So set a different way. How do we know that the New Testament authors were trustworthy historians that got it right? So that's what we're gonna to tackle today. And I want to acknowledge up front that what we're going to do is we're going to seek to determine whether or not the major events as described in the New Testament really happened. And to some people, this task might seem impossible, right? How can you know the past with any certainty? We can't go back in time and relive these events all over again. So how do we go about approaching this topic today? Well, friends, we're going to use the same uh, standard that a jury would use in making a determination as to whether or not a defendant committed a crime. Keep in mind, if history can't be known, then no jury could ever reach a verdict. Think about that for a second. If history can't be known, then a jury would never be able to reach a verdict, and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see if we can conclude beyond reasonable doubt that what was said about Jesus in this book really happened. Now, historians, they need to approach their trade the way that a forensic scientist or a police officer would approach their trade as well. When they show up on a crime scene, a forensic scientist needs to determine, what do I see here? What's left behind? And based on that, how do I reconstruct what happened? historians got to do the same thing, right? So are you ready to do a little CSI work with me this morning, a little little crime scene investigation? All right, so let's go with this metaphor for a second. Let's pretend that you're a forensic scientist and we're showing up on a crime scene, okay? There's a body laying in kind of an awkward position over here. They're sitting just off the edge of a park bench and they're kind of sitting in a strange way that's not natural, okay? The park bench itself is sitting kind of crooked. It's not sitting on its concrete slab properly. And next to the body, there's a backpack with some contents that are spilled out, some documents and some other things that you're not sure about. Over here, there's what looks like a club or a bat. Now, you're not sure if that club is related to that dead body over there or not, but it's here And if you look over here, there's some people that are walking towards the scene of the crime. If you look over here, there's people who are walking away from the scene of the crime and they're moving quick. And over here, there's people who are just got their phones out and they're kind of recording the flashing lights and the people who are showing up, et cetera. Okay. If that's you, if you've shown up to the scene, what is the most important thing to you to be able to make a proper determination as to what happened? What are you looking for? witnesses. Yeah, you're looking for witnesses. For you to have confidence that you can reconstruct what happened here, the most important thing to you at first is a witness, someone who saw it. Now let's stay on this witness train for a second. Do you want one witness or do you want more than one witness? More than one. Preferably more than one, right? The mo- if we have multiple witnesses, we can have a better chance of having confidence that we can rebuild or reconstruct what actually happened here. When do you want these witnesses talking? Sooner or later? We'd like their testimony pretty soon if we can. So there's not time for the story to change. Okay. Is there anything else about the witnesses that would give us confidence that what they're saying is accurate and true? Is there anything about the witnesses themselves that are important to us? What's that? Trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. Yeah, character. I think I heard someone say character. How do we know these people are telling the truth? Do they have a pattern of lying? Do they have a rap sheet associated with their name that shows that they've lied under oath before? Is there anything that would take away from our willingness or confidence to trust in their testimony? And there's a few different probably sniff tests we could look at to make the determination as to whether or not these people, these witnesses are telling the truth. Okay, outside of witnesses, what else matters as you're trying to reconstruct what happened here? What else are you gonna look at or look for? Any other thoughts? The physical evidence, yeah. What's the deal with this backpack? Why do we think this would be tied to the crime? Why is he sitting in an awkward way? Why is the park bench sitting off kilter, right? Is the club connected or is it not connected? We wanna look at all the ancillary evidence, all the corroborating evidence, if if for no other reason than to affirm, does it fit the narrative that the eyewitnesses have given us? We need to see if there's harmony, because if there's not, we might need to go back to the story and see if we need to get more information. All right. Well, so let's dig into this. Let's, let's dig in and see what we learn as we throw some of these sniff tests at the New Testament this morning. The first thing we're going to ask is, do we have witness testimony in the people who wrote down and recorded the New Testament? And the answer to that question is a glowing yes. We see Luke say this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke is saying, I've interviewed eyewitnesses. I'm compiling an orderly account of what I have learned John says in 1 John 1.1, he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. John is saying, I was there. After that, we hear from Peter. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming of the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Paul says in describing the resurrection accounts in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and then he appeared to James, referring to Jesus, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. These First Testament authors were there. They were at the scene of the crime, so to speak. They have a first-person testimony of what they have seen and heard and experienced. Now, if you're a critic, you might be saying, yeah, but these guys were Jesus fans. These, were on the, these guys were on the Jesus bus, on their sweaters, it has a capital J. Like, these guys had a lot of interest in promoting this, this Jesus fella as someone supernatural because they were, they were fans. They were promoters of Jesus. And you might be right, these guys are followers, they're fans, they're promoters of Jesus. We need to be cautious of testimony bias. We wanna make sure that we're mindful of if there's any slant on testimony, be it positive or negative, we gotta be aware of that. But we don't take away from someone just because they were a fan of the testimony that they're providing. In any court of law, you listen first to the eyewitnesses. You listen foremost to the eyewitnesses and you favor their testimony over hearsay. If someone says, yeah, I had a first cousin whose uncle's ex-wife said this about Jesus, well, that's a few steps removed from the actual testimony. Any court of law is going to look for someone who was there, and we certainly find in the New Testament we have that in spades. Okay, the next question is this. How do we know that the testimony is early? How do we know these guys wrote down stuff early on in their lifetimes? Well, I learned in seminary that there are some New Testament critics that think that the New Testament wasn't written down until around 120 to 150 A.D. And that would be problematic for us. Why? Well, if the New Testament wasn't recorded until around 120 or 150, that's clearly after the death of the eyewitnesses. And so the documents in this book that bear their names would have to be forgeries. Right? Matthew couldn't have written in 120 or 150 after he died, so that would discredit heavily the strength of the testimony that we find in the New Testament. Now, I personally believe that the New Testament was fully completed by about 95 AD, and I think we can back it up even further. I believe that the New Testament was substantively completed by AD 70, and I think I can prove that to you this morning. How? Well, let me give you an analogy first, Okay. Let's say on your drive home today, you're gonna to pick up some summer reading, right? You leave tonight for the beach and you wanna have a good book to digest while you're soaking up some sun. And you go to Barnes and Noble and you see this book, The History of the World Trade Center. Like, oh, I love New York City, I'd love to learn about the history of the, of the World Trade Center. You flip over the book to the back cover and you realize uh, that the author, is someone who ran their business from the World Trade Center's North Tower for over 20 years. That was their base of operations for their business. So you realize, hey, these people, this person has, has, an, has a, a, an authoritative voice and they have the right to, you know, to, to write this book, right? They're, they're coming at this from the right perspective. 20 years operating from the World Trade Center. But then you scan through the table of contents and you realize that their history of the World Trade Center, it ends with the Twin Towers still standing proudly in New York City. Now if someone's writing a history of the World Trade Center and their history ends with the tower still standing, what conclusion do you have to draw, necessarily? When was this book written? Before 9-11. Who writes a history and leaves out arguably the single most defining event of the World Trade Center? Nobody. The towers collapsed, they became rubble on September 11th, 2001. The buildings were struck by airplanes that had been taken over by terrorists, and the Twin Towers were leveled. How could you write a history of the World Trade Center after 9-11 and exclude that event? That would be absolutely nonsensical, right? So clearly this history was written before September 11th of 2001. Mike, where are you going with this? If you're a Jew living around the time of Jesus, do you realize that your whole life is in a sense centered around the temple in Jerusalem? This is the place that you and your people consider to be the literal dwelling place of God on earth. Solomon first constructed this building around 957 BC and you and your ancestors have been coming here for a thousand years to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins for yourself, for your family, for your people. This is not just a proud building in Israel, this structure is your national identity. But do you know that 37 years after the death of Christ, in AD 70, the temple of Jerusalem was decimated. In a very, very well documented war with the Romans, not only is the temple destroyed, but Jerusalem as a city is leveled. Tens of thousands of your countrymen are killed, and if you happen to be a Jesus fan during this time, do you know that the central figures of your New Testament are all killed during this timeline? We're talking Peter, we're talking James, we're talking Paul, are all killed at this time. But you know what's interesting? The New Testament mentions none of that. The New Testament is completely silent On these matters. The book of Acts, the historical record in the New Testament, it ends with Paul sitting in Rome awaiting trial. He's appealed to Felix, he's appealed to Festus, he's gone on to appeal to Caesar, he's gone to Rome, he's waiting in a cell, writing letters, awaiting trial. Do you know what happens in AD 64 by chance? A guy named Nero is emperor of Rome, and a massive fire breaks out in Rome. In fact, some people think Nero set his own city city aflame. In AD 64, all but four of the 14 quarters of Rome are ravaged by this fire. And yet there's no mention of that either in Rome, right? Paul's awaiting trial. What do we make of this? Guys, these events hadn't happened yet. And they happened in AD 70. Now, a critic might say, oh, it was just, they're just an omission, they just forgot to leave it out. Do you know that Jesus predicted this? Jesus literally predicted the destruction of the temple. Why would someone who's promoting and talking about Jesus leave out one of his own prophecies, one of his own predictions about what would happen? And how can we leave out the death of Peter and James and Paul, the heroes, the central figures of the New Testament? Guys, they're left out because they hadn't happened yet. The only writings, in my opinion, that occurred after AD 70 were the entries that were done by John. Well, why did John, why why are John's letters later? He died as an old man in exile on the island of Patmos. It's kind of an island prison. He was isolated from literally the rest of the world, right? And so he would have had no idea that these things had gone on, right? So um, do we have an early dating to the New Testament? I believe we absolutely do. Now, What about eyewitness character? Is the character of the eyewitnesses important? It absolutely is. But this is where our task gets a little trickier. Here's why. Every one of you in this room has lied before. Every one of you. And if you're trying to avoid eye contact with me, it probably happened this morning (laughs) that you lied. Now, if we acknowledge that we've all lied, how do we know when or if these New Testament authors are telling the truth when they write down things that they say that Jesus said and did. Well, there's marks of authenticity that you look for in the testimony that even witness examiners in a court of law will look for to determine whether or not the testimony is trustworthy. Okay, now I've heard someone say that if someone's giving you an answer to a question, but they look up and to the left when they answer, maybe it's up and to the right, I don't know, that they're lying, right? We obviously can't do that with the New Testament authors. But what can we do? What can we do? Well, we're gonna look for three different things in the testimony. The first is this. Do the New Testament eyewitness accounts include divergent details? Do they include divergent details? What does that mean? Do their narratives include differences from one to the other? And you might be saying, no, no, Mike, you mean do do the testimonies include the same details or very similar details? That's not what I mean at all we're looking for divergent details. Here's what I mean by that. I don't think the Titans played a, a practice game last night, but let's just say they did. Let's say that they played a football game last night and they won against, a, a, you know, a practice game against the Buffalo Bills and they won 34 to 17, okay? If you and I were both there and someone said, tell me about the game last night, we might both say the Titans won. We might both give the score, they won 34 17. But as we keep talking and keep providing additional details, what we'll find is that your details that you provide are slightly different than the details that I provide. Why? Because we were both there, but we saw slightly different things. We might connect with slightly different details. When two witnesses give word for word similar testimony, it's actually a red flag because it suggests collusion. It says that these people got together and smoothed over their stories so they had the exact same version of what happened. Testimony is trustworthy when you discover idiosyncratic differences from one person giving testimony versus another. Now, what do we see in the New Testament? We've got four Gospels. We've got four sets of eyeballs pointed at Christ. And there's a lot of harmony in these Gospels, right? They all talk about the feeding of the 5,000. They all talk about the crucifixion. They all talk about the empty tomb. There's a lot of overlay. There's a lot of overlap. But there's also some very interesting idiosyncrasies. Okay. Let me spend just a second talking about the book of Matthew. What was Matthew's occupation, by the way? Remind me. He was a tax collector. Matthew is looking at the world through a financial lens, and I'm now going to apply my $3 visual aid that I bought on Amazon this week. Matthew is looking at the world through a very financial lens. Would you agree? He's a tax collector. Matthew's job is to receive tax, to collect tax, to collect debt, Right to collect money which is owed. Right? Would it surprise you to learn that it's in the book of Matthew that we hear the story about um, Peter catching a fish and reaching into the fish's mouth and pulling out a coin that is sufficient to pay for two people's temple tax? That's a cool story, right? It's not in all four gospels. It's only in one. It's only in Matthew. Interesting. The guy whose job it probably was to collect temple tax. There's a story in Matthew as well called the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is a story about a man who was forgiven a very large sum that he owed his master. And then this same dude comes around and finds a guy who owes him money and kind of rings the neck of the guy who owes him money, right? Uh, He's willing to have his big debt forgiven, but he's not willing to forgive a smaller debt. Well, where do we find that parable? In Matthew. We find it only in Matthew. It's about a debt that is owed, all right? There's a parable called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, a landowner hires a couple guys to work in his vineyard, and they start early in the morning, and he agrees to hire them and pay them one denarius for a day's work, and they set off to work in his, uh, in his vineyard that day. And then several hours later at midday, some more people show up, and he says, hey, go to work in my vineyard. I'll pay you one denarius, and so they go to work, and then later in the day, near the end of the day, two more guys show up. Hey, I want to work in your vineyard. Great. I'll pay you one denarius, and the guys over here that have started at like 7 a.m. are like, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. We've been here longer. We, we're owed more money, right? It's a parable of, of, that's a financial parable. that has got obviously some greater meaning to it. But it's interesting that that's only found in Matthew. Only found in Matthew. And even though all four gospel authors talk about the empty tomb, there's an interesting detail in Matthew's gospel about the tomb. Matthew is the only one who records the story that the the guards at the tomb were paid bribe money or hush money to tell the authorities that, hey, while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole away the body. They are told to say that, and they're given money to say that. Interesting detail that we only find in Matthew. Because he's the guy who's looking at the world through a financial lens, It probably wouldn't surprise you to learn that when you read Luke's gospel, we find a lot more detail pertaining to medicine and Jesus' healings, the sicknesses of people. Why? Luke is a doctor. Now, I'm committed to the inspiration of Scripture, to the inerrancy of Scripture, but when you look at Scripture closely, you also find very human details in their writings. We find very clear, divergent details that suggest that the people who are writing this, they have their own versions of the stories, and it's awesome. All right. Do we have divergent details within the New Testament? 100% yes. What are we looking for next? In the New Testament, do the writings include or achieve what I call the criterion of embarrassment? What is the criterion of embarrassment? It is when a testimony includes embarrassing or details that are not helpful to the author. And here's going to be your favorite picture of this morning. All right. Why is the criterion of embarrassment important in testimony? Well, it's because most of us have a tendency to leave out of our narration anything that makes us look bad. We tend to leave out anything that's embarrassing or is not helpful to the cause that we're trying to promote. So the question becomes, do the New Testament authors include embarrassing details in their narratives that are not helpful to them, that are not helpful to the case that they're trying to put forth? And the answer is yes. Now you gotta keep in mind that the New Testament writers, these guys aren't just authors of the book. They're also characters in the scene. They're also participants in the story that they're writing about. And what you find when you look at the New Testament is these guys often cast themselves in a very unflattering light. A couple examples of this. They depict themselves as being somewhat dim-witted. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying to them multiple times. Sometimes the disciples project or portray themselves as being uncaring. Uh, These people fall asleep on Jesus twice when he asks with them, in fact pleads with them, to pray for him during his hour of need. The disciples are at times rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. He's also corrected by Paul on a theological issue. And the disciples are portrayed as cowards. Every one of them but one flees when Jesus goes to the cross. In fact, Peter even denies Jesus three times immediately after promising to never disown him. And then on the Sunday morning, it's the women who find the empty tomb. Why? Because the disciples are still in hiding. Guys, what would the New Testament look like if it was edited by the authors? The disciples would have left out their ineptness. They would have left out their cowardice their rebukes, their denials. And they would have depicted themselves as bold believers who stood with Jesus to the end and then marched down to the tomb on that Sunday morning where Jesus would have congratulated them on their great faith. But that's not what we see. That's not at all what we see in the New Testament. Whatever weaknesses they may have had, the biblical authors are universally presented in Scripture as scrupulously honest and this lends credibility to their claim for the Bible is not shy to admit the failures of his people. Guys, the new Testament absolutely achieves the criterion of embarrassment. What's the third thing that uh, witness examiners are looking for to see whether or not they can trust the testimony of the witness. It's this, does the eyewitness testimony hold up under pressure? Does it pass a stress test? Now, I want to give an example from history on this. Um, whenever the Olympics are on, I love to watch the Olympics. Um, it's just just fun. And there's some events that America consistently does really well in, and it's fun to see people who are excellent performing in their area of uh, skill and giftedness, etc. A couple Olympics ago, we had a swimmer whose name was Ryan Lochte. He's competed in a number of Olympic Games. And in the Rio Games, a couple of Olympics ago, um, this guy, this is not a pun intended, this guy got into a little bit of hot water, so to speak. And you may or may not remember this, but I'll go ahead and give you a bit of a, a, bit of a recap. Uh, Ryan was interviewed by uh, CNN, and he had told the CNN reporter that he was mugged the night before at gunpoint where someone took his money. And, of course, CNN's like, whoa, one of our athletes was mugged. What happened? And so the cameras are on Ryan. He's giving his testimony. And Rio was ashamed by this. I'm not sure if you remember, but the host city did not take this well. Rio, by the way, is a town fairly well known for, for petty crime. So it's not at all unlikely that this could have happened. But nonetheless, it was a disgrace to the host city because they had taken the steps to beef up security and protect the athletes and protect the guests. So Rio wanted to get to the bottom of this. And so they hauled Ryan into the, pre, into the police precinct and said, tell me exactly what happened moment by moment by moment. And he said, he said, here's my story. And they said, great. You understand that whoever did this, they are in a lot of trouble. Someone may be going to jail for this. He says, yep. Well, then they haul in Ryan's teammates who were with him that night. And they gave their testimony, word for word for word, moment by moment. And they said the same thing. You realize someone's going to jail for this. Like, okay. And there was a bit of a hesitation And what's interesting is that as the police officers got into the weeds on this, the story started to change. Why? Well, because as soon as it was revealed that there was gonna be consequences for whoever did wrong here, and that heat was turned up a little bit, it was discovered that Ryan didn't give the whole story. Yeah, Ryan was at a bathroom at a gas station and he vandalized the bathroom is what came out of this uh, cross-examination. And the store owner came out to Ryan and says, hey, you just vandalized my place. You've got to pay money so I can do the repairs. Ryan's like, I do not. Police officer walks up and says, what happened here? And the, the store owner says, this man vandalized my bathroom. I need him to pay, to pay me for the damages. The police officer looks at Ryan and says, you've got to pay this guy for the damage you caused to his building. Do it right now. Ryan reaches into his pocket and passes the store owner some money. That was the mugging that occurred right? Well, it's interesting, the truth finally came out. Why? Why did the truth emerge? There's a little bit of disgrace, and there was a consequence that was dangled in front of the people who are giving testimony. Guys, when punishment awaits a liar, the truth tends to emerge. If you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about. Sometimes your kids need to realize, if you're not telling me the truth, let's talk about what happens next. And somehow, occasionally, the story changes. Why does this matter? When we look at the New Testament, you need to realize that 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. Only John survived martyrdom. The other disciples were killed for professing that Jesus is Lord, that he had performed miracles, that he died and that he was raised to life again. You need to realize that all of these people could have saved their necks by recanting their beliefs but they chose not to. And these are the very folks who were in the position to know whether or not what they were saying was true. All they had to do was say, Aha, I'm lying, uh, just kidding. None of them did. One of my professors at seminary, J.P. Moreland, says this, 12 powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of the apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That maybe one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Guys, you can take this to the bank. Liars make lousy martyrs. If you know something you're professing is untrue, you will not die for a lie. All right, last section. What else is at the crime scene? As we look at the corroborating evidence or the ancillary evidence, this is the the backpack, this is the park bench, this is the club, uh, this is the stuff that we're scouring the crime scene to see. Does it fit with what the witnesses are saying? We also want to examine this. And here's what I can tell you about the corroborating evidence. In the New Testament, we have over 30 historically confirmed people that are described. Over 30 that we can confirm through other sources that are written about in the New Testament. The people seem to suggest uh, that they are validatable through the testimony. We can look at archaeology. You know, the archaeologists fairly recently uncovered the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. It took a while. It was buried very deep down. And there's an interesting detail in John's gospel. John says that the pool of Bethesda had five covered colonnades. Almost an incidental detail, but John provides it nonetheless. Do you know when they unearthed the pool of Bethesda, they counted one, two, three, four, what do you know, five covered colonnades at the pool of Bethesda. I went with Fellowship Bible to Jerusalem in 2016, and we were at a place called Caesarea, where I saw this thing. And when I saw it, I'm like, you got to be kidding me, that's here? And I ran to this stone because I've heard of this thing in seminary. This is the Pilate stone. You might say, what on earth is the Pilate stone? Do you know that before this rock was discovered that some people thought that Pilate was an invented character in the Jesus narrative? Pilate, of course, being the guy who sentenced Jesus to death. Someone of that level of importance, that level of prominence, there has to have been a whole host of other stuff that we'd find throughout the archeology span about Pilate, but we had found nothing. And so people thought, Man, maybe, they, maybe he was just this made up character. Well that was until 1961 when they found the Pilate Stone. This is an inscription uh, and on this rock it says, Pontius Pilatus, Prefect of Judea. What's interesting is that we found it in Caesarea. Maybe he had a summer home by the water, not sure. Maybe he fled Jerusalem after sentencing Jesus to death, not sure, but nonetheless in Caesarea we found the Pilate Stone. And what's cool is that in 1991, 1992, roughly, we found the burial grounds of Caiaphas. This is the high priest of the Sanhedrin. This guy lived in the first century. We didn't find his grave until the 20th century, and we keep finding this stuff. If you go to Jerusalem on a tour with Fellowship Bible or another organization, whatever you prefer, it's fascinating to see the things that we are still finding to this day. Here's what you need to know about all of these archeological discoveries. I'll let Nelson Glick say it, he says it best. It is worth noting that no archeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. There hasn't been a single discovery that has controverted or contradicted a single biblical reference. Miller Burroughs from Yale says it this way, the Bible is supported by archaeological evidence again and again. The fact that the record can be so often explained or illustrated by archaeological data shows that it fits into the framework of history as only a genuine product of ancient life could do. The names of places and persons turn up at the right places and in the right periods. You guys, the archaeology, the stuff we find in the ground at the crime scene, so to speak, it checks out. Now, with the very last section of our time together with you this morning, I wanna talk to you about my third favorite class in seminary. And as, as is often the case, I'm guilty of taking this much content and cramming it down. But I had a class in seminary that was just so fun because it was so unique. On day one of the class called The Search for the Historical Jesus, my professor, Gary Habermas, said, all right, pull out your Bibles. So we did. He said, put it on the ground, you're not gonna need it. am like, okay. He says, we're gonna scour the extra biblical record and we're gonna see what we can learn about Jesus without ever touching our Bibles. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. This is gonna be fun. And he said, the first thing we need to agree on is what's the timeline we're gonna use? He said, okay. He said, for example, and he held up a Quran. He says, the Quran gives a depiction of Jesus. Will we allow this to be entered into evidence? And someone said, when was the Quran written? Gary said it was composed between 610 and 632 AD. No, it was completed in 632. That's 600 years after Jesus. Okay, so is that admissible into evidence? Is that close enough to the events that it's describing to be considered a credible voice talking about the life of Jesus? And we said, no, that's too far. 600 years is too much gap. That telephone game we learned about in week one probably kicks in at that 600 year gap right? So what is the timeline we can use? At first we said, oh, first century only, only first century documents. We said, okay, that really limits us to the gospels and the writings of Josephus. We're like, all right, we probably need to get bigger than that. So we landed on the timeline of, and if it was written before 150 to 180 AD, we would admit that into evidence. And so our entire class for that semester, we were looking at anything that said anything about Jesus up to the date, 180 AD. And we discovered that there are 22 extra biblical sources that in some way or other reference the life of Christ, who he is, what he did, so on and so forth. 22 books, 22 publications refer to Christ in one way or another. Because we don't have an hour this morning, I'm gonna talk to you about five of these and they're on the screen here. The letters of Pliny the Younger. Pliny was a Roman governor in Bithynia, which is modern day Turkey. He wrote a letter to Emperor Hadrian, or a series of letters to Emperor Hadrian, to discuss with him what he was doing about the growing Christian problem. Interesting choice of words. Eusebius is a church historian. The book in the center is the Jewish Talmud. This is the story, uh, their history, uh, reflecting on Yeshua through their eyes. Annals of Tacitus, which is a a guy who recorded the histories of several Roman emperors. And on the far right, arguably the most important historian from the first century, a guy named Flavius Josephus that provides a ton of insight into a number of events, including the war with the Romans that happened in AD 70. Well, as we look at just these five, and I'm going to race through these. If we look at just these five, what do we learn about Jesus? Again, this is without us looking at the Bible at all. Here's what we find in their writings. Number one, there's 23 data points we're going to discover. Number one, we learn from their writings that Christians were named for their founder, Jesus Christ, who was widely accepted as a wise and virtuous man, recognized for his good conduct. Number two, he lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which we know was between A.D. 14 to 37, and that he had many disciples who were both Jews and Gentiles, to whom he would teach ethical principles regarding the absence from sin, Point five, he was recognized as being able to affect nature through the performance of miracles, what the Talmud actually called sorcery. Some of these miracles were healings. Others were resurrections from the dead. Point eight, these miracles were well attested and they could be checked out by eyewitnesses of the events. Point ten, Jesus was brought into custody and accused of leading Israel astray. For this, he was given the trial at which no one stepped forward to defend him. Point 12, he was given into the hands of the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate, who condemned him to die by method of crucifixion. Point 15, Jesus' death ended the superstition, love that word choice, for a while. But 16, it broke out again because the disciples reported that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them on the third day after crucifixion. Point 18, consequently, the disciples continued his teaching, especially in Judea, where the teaching had its origin, but 20 also in Rome. 21, after this event, Jesus was worshiped as deity by early believers. And this is interesting. A day of worship seems to have been established. For the Jews, it had always been Saturday. There's a shift to Sunday that this references. Point 23, perhaps he was the Messiah concerning whom the Old Testament prophets spoke and predicted wonders. Guys, we find this out without even touching our Bible. I don't know about you. I, listen, I know I'm a geek. I know this stuff probably jazzes me than it jazzes you. But when I look at this, I get goosebumps because the story checks out. If we go to the extra biblical witness, we have almost perfect and complete harmony with the main events that are described in the New Testament. And yes, I've got an article on the website that will show you how I construct these 23 data points from those five different authors. Listen guys, here's what you need to know this morning. When we look at the New Testament, are these guys trustworthy? Well, first sniff test one, do we have eyewitnesses? We do, we have multiple independent eyewitnesses that are contributing to the New Testament narrative. Point two, They provide early testimony. These guys have written down what they are saying prior to AD 70 by and large. Number three, they contain divergent details. We see individual testimony that is specific to the individual authors. And this testimony includes embarrassment. These guys are willing to say things about themselves and about their cause that wasn't entirely supportive of themselves and their cause. They were willing to embarrass themselves in their testimony. Perhaps most importantly, they were willing to, to die. In fact, 11 of the 12 did die for what they said was true. When we look at the rest of the crime scene, we find archaeological data that overlaps and harmonizes wonderfully. And when we look outside the Bible to the extra biblical witness, guys, it checks out. This happened. So where does that leave us? Well, I'll tell you, if you want to do further reading, first of all, there's some books that'll be great for you to read. You can take a screenshot of this or you can write down some names. If you wanna get into some further reading, go further than, than what we've described this morning, by all means, you can do so. These are some of my favorite books on the topics we're looking at today. But where does this leave us? Where do we go next week? We have finished our entry looking at the trustworthiness, uh, the, the veracity of the New Testament. We're gonna turn the page now and in our final week, week four in our series, we're gonna look at Jesus. Why? Because if you've established a firm case of the New Testament, you can't help but wind up at Jesus' door. And we're gonna see what did this guy have to say about who he is, what he did, and what he offers. We're gonna look specifically at, is Jesus the only way to salvation? In a culture that we live in today, that claim, that suggestion sounds like the height of arrogance. Jesus is the only way to salvation. That sounds bigoted. That sounds narrow. That sounds exclusive. That sounds intolerant. These are all buzzwords that our culture hates. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Was he right? And if he is right, what do we do about that? How can we affirm that what he said is true and applies and matters to me? That's where we're going next week. So I hope you come back, and I hope we can look at this in a way that would allow us to convey and um, share this truth with others in a way that isn't culturally offensive. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. I'm grateful for the chance that we have to love you with our mind. Lord, to look at things like the historical record and look at the testimony left behind that we examine to learn about you. Lord, there's a book in our hands that points us towards you and there's a world that's asking questions and is, has concerns and objections. And Lord, I pray through our time together as ambassadors of yours that we would learn how to be equipped to share your love and to share your truth with others. Would you help us to process through our own concerns, our own objections, our own discovery as we look for the answers to the questions that sometimes even we have, Lord, would we take what we find and would you empower it to make us bolder? Lord, we look at this New Testament and we leave our time together confident that what is said in this book really happened. There are enormous consequences in our life because of that truth. So Jesus, I pray you'd prepare our hearts, I pray you'd go before us. Would you love us and would you give us an extra portion of your grace so that we can share your love with others and um, share it with the world that so desperately needs to hear your message. It's in your wonderful name that we pray, amen.